Well, good morning. This past week in the mail, I received my latest copy of Outside Magazine. Do you recognize who this is on the cover of Outside Magazine? This is the ever-smiling ever face of Bear Grylls, the British adventurer and survival expert. I don't know if you've ever seen any one of his TV shows, but he's famous for two things. His incredible superhuman sense of adventure and for eating gross stuff, because that happens in every single one of the TV episodes. What's not as well known about him is his attitude toward failure. And for more than most people, he tends to shrug failure off. For every, for every crazy t- stunt that he pulls on TV, uh, there's one that he's tried and failed. He's, uh, sometimes it's cost him dearly. He's, he's broken bones and, and suffered injuries all over his body. He's had to rehab countless times. In this particular magazine article, he talks about uh, a little bit about his failed business adventures, TV shows he, he tried that didn't work, investments that didn't pan out. He's lost plenty of money over the years. And he's, uh, like, but like his physical injuries, he tends to shrug off his business failures. So here's a quote from the article. He says, Listen, we never know when these things, whether these things will work. And I never go in thinking that we're only going to do it if it's a huge success. I've had way more failures. But who wants to reach the end of their life in a perfectly preserved body? The scars and the crinkles and the cracks are what make us interesting. Don't you just love adventure? That's a quote from Bear Grylls. Not all of us have Bear Grylls' adventurous spirit, and not many of us are as good at failure as he is. Or maybe another way to, a better way to put it is, some of us are as good at failure as he is. We're just not as good at shrugging it off as he is. I, I often wish that I was a little bit more like Bear Grylls in a bunch of different ways. Not completely like him, but I wish that I was like him more in some ways. So on Sundays since the beginning of the year, we've been tracing out the, the storyline of the entire Bible. We started in Genesis, where we learned about the goodness of creation and the failure of the human race. And now we're in Paul the Apostle's letter to the Roman church, where we hear about what God has done about humanity's failure through Jesus Christ. If you haven't been with us in previous weeks, the, the other sermons are available on our website. Um, failure. Today's passage is about failure. Not physical failure, not business failure. It's about spiritual failure. And in these verses, humanity's story takes an unexpected turn. As you'll hear when we read the passage for today, there were people who thought that they were exempt from spiritual failure. But it turns out they were all wrong. So let's read together God's word from Romans chapter 2. It's printed on page 9 of your bulletins. You may think that you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for, the, for doing these things, do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the very same things? Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God did not repay each person according to what they have done, for God does not show favoritism. 
All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, in their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think that you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? If you tell others not to steal, why do you steal? Uh, but, But do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. See, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter." Such a person's praise is not from man, but from God. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. This morning, Spirit of Christ, we pray that you would open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear and teach us what we need to know. In Christ's name, amen. Throughout the Bible, it's really not uncommon for the Bible to contrast two kinds of people. There's one who's condemned, uh, co- condemned and the other one is commended. And readers of this letter would have expected that pattern to continue here, something similar. They would have expected to Paul, for Paul to say, those outsider Gentiles, they're, you know, they're bad, don't be like them. And the Jewish Christians, that's you, the recipients of the letter, you're good. Keep doing what you're doing. That's what they would have expected to hear. But here he surprises them by turning it around. He commends the Gentiles, but convicts the Jewish Christians. As he put it in verse 11, God does not show partiality. He will give to everyone what they are due. As I said before, this passage is about spiritual failure. And so we'll try to look, we'll try to learn three things from Romans chapter 2. The first is how we fail. The second is God's response to our spiritual failure. And the third is what can we do about our failure. So here's the first thing, how we fail. Paul starts this chapter by saying, you who pass judgment on someone else, you have no excuse because you do the same things. This only makes sense if you go back and see what was in chapter 1, which Brad preached on the last couple weeks. You might remember how in chapter 1, Paul the Apostle wrote about how the Gentiles, pagans, idol worshipers, how they were worshiping, bowing down to figures of wood and stone and metal, sexual orgies, all kinds of abominable practices. That was all outlined in Romans chapter 1. 
And then all of a sudden, Paul turns around and says, hey, those of you who are hearing this and sitting in judgment of others, you need to know that you do the same thing. Paul knew that this letter would be read aloud to the Roman congregation. And who was in the Roman congregation? Well, it was both Jewish and Gentile Christian converts who might have been thinking as they listened, oh yeah, those pagans, their orgies, that bowing down and worshiping idols. Isn't that just awful? Oh man, I'm so glad that I don't, that I don't do that and that I'm not like them. So here in chapter 2, he turns his attention to the religious people, to those who would, would think of, would describe themselves as religious, who are definitely not pagan, who are definitely not into orgies, who definitely don't bow down to idols made out of wood or stone. And to those people, he says, hey, all of you who have been trying to obey the Bible all your lives, who've been relying on obedience to the law and been feeling pretty good about it and saying things like, I obey the biblical law, you need to know that when you condemn those pagans over there, you're condemning yourselves because you do the same things that they do. Now, that just absolutely would have been very shocking to them. They would have said, how can that be? He's talking about orgies and bowing down to idols and stuff like that. How can we, the good Bible-believing people who've been trying to obey the Bible all our lives, how can you talk to us and say, you condemn yourselves because you do the same things? Well, if you go down a little bit deeper into the text, you look at verses uh, 21 and 22, for example, he actually addresses that question. He says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You, you say that you, uh, should not, people should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? At this point, the, the reason he's saying you condemn yourselves is this. Even though he's talking to moral people, they're hypocrites. And that's just the reality. That's just the reality. I mean, in any moral community, any church, any religious group, all of them are made up of hypocrites who say, this is what I believe. And then in actual practice, in private, or maybe even in public, they're doing the exact opposite of the thing that they say they believe. So hypocrisy is partly why he's able to say, hey, religious people, Bible-believing, Bible-obeying folk, looking at those awful pagans out there laughing together in their drunkenness and orgies, you might feel superior to them, but you're doing the same thing. That's part of it. But there's another reason why he can say that. Some of it is hypocrisy, but it's not all. Because then he says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And here he's talking to Jewish Christian believers. And this accusation would have really made their head spin. They would have, it would have been completely unexplainable at first sight. Because there's absolutely no record of like this sort of um, Roman Jewish Christian Racket where they're, you know, they're, they're stealing idols from pagan temples and selling them on the black market or something like that. There's no record of this. So they would have said, what are you even talking about bowing down to idols? That's not something we do. We would probably say the same thing, wouldn't we? Well, how many of you have like actual idols set up on a shelf in your home with a little shrine and candles and incense? And um, The answer is that Paul's speaking metaphorically here. The message, here's, here's what he's trying to say. He's, this is what he's getting at. You're religious. You obey the Ten Commandments. Externally, it looks like you're complying with all the rules and regulations. But even though you may not have idols in your house, you have idols in your heart. You say you hate idols, and you're outwardly obedient, but the things that you really live for, 
the things that really give you meaning in life, the things that get you up out of bed in the morning, the things that you're really worshiping are something different than what you say. It's your family, it's your career, reputation, achievement, power, fun, whatever it is. And really, you're no better than the idolaters you condemn. You may not have idols in your house, but you have idols in your heart. So when you condemn them, you're condemning yourselves too. So maybe you've heard one of Jesus' most famous parables. One of the most famous stories that he told was of uh, the prodigal son in Luke's gospel, chapter 15. And in that parable, Jesus tells the story of a father who had two sons. And there was a younger brother who takes all of the father's money and he squanders it on women and wine. He's materialistic. He's licentious. He's disobedient. He does all the sins. And he does them all at once. I mean, he's really good at it, actually. And then the older brother, the other son, he's very obedient, very compliant. He does everything that the father says. But the point of the parable, the whole point of the story Jesus tells, is that they're both lost. It's not the lost son and the good one. It's the lost son and the lost son. They're just lost in different ways. They've both rejected the Father. They've both gone their own way. They both need salvation and restoration. The wild brother changes and repents and is saved. And the very, very good brother doesn't want to do any of that. Here in Romans, Paul the Apostle is giving his greatest exposition of the gospel of salvation and restoration. He's, he's laying it out in words that are be, as beautiful and glorious as anything that's ever been written, and he's saying exactly the same thing. He's saying, in Romans chapter 1, I'm writing about the younger brother, how they need to repent and be saved. And then in Romans 2, he says, you elder brothers who are trying so hard to be good and think God owes you a good life because you're so good, you need to know that you're every bit as lost as the other people that you're you're looking at and condemning. You're every bit in need of salvation as they are. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that surprising? I mean, we think we're so different from those wild and reckless people. Or we think that we're so, we're so different than those uptight fuddy-duddies. But according to Jesus and according to Paul, we're all in the same boat. So whether we're a godless Greek or a God-fearing Jew, whether we're an older brother or a younger one, We're all spiritual failures. We've all fallen short. Not one of us can look in the mirror and say, I'm good. I've done everything I was supposed to do. I did it all the right way. I have no regrets. None of us can honestly say, I have no regrets. It's like a story I read, a true story, about an American who was traveling through India, and at one point he was riding in a little boat. And while they were riding, another little boat came over and they accidentally bumped into each other and a fair amount of water got splashed up into the American's boat. Everybody got wet up to their knees and the pilot got very upset and the American said, don't worry, it's all right, we're okay. It's just a little bit of water. And a couple minutes later, the pilot seemed even more upset and the American said, don't worry, we're okay, we just got a little wet. And they got to the dock and the American said again, See, we're okay. Everything's fine. And the man looked up at him and said, We're not okay. And he pushed him out of the boat onto the dock, and he jumped up onto the dock himself, and at that moment, the boat was sucked down into the water. 
And it turns out that the bump had made a hole in the hull of their boat. And the pilot had seen it, and the American had not. And if they had stayed in the boat, even just a few more seconds, they would have gone down with the boat. And that's the message of the Bible. We're sitting, the message of the Bible is that we're sitting there telling, you, telling ourselves and telling each other, don't worry, we're okay. It's just a little bit of water. I mean, it'll dry, right? We don't see the hole in our own boat. We're all lost. We're all spiritual failures, and no one has the right to look down on anyone else. We're all in trouble. We're all alienated from God in need of salvation. So how does God respond to that situation? Let's consider that next. That's the second thing. God's response to our spiritual failure. Centuries ago, long before any of us was born, God's response to humanity's failure was to share his law with us. We see here in Romans chapter 2 that, I mean, how many, just go through sometime this afternoon and count how many times the word law is said in here. I mean, it seems to be something he's really drilling down on. So we see here in Romans 2 that God's judgment will be according to his law, and nobody will be able to stand in light of God's law. And that, that may not exactly sound like good news. I mean, I suppose it's not, really. But there are two things that are really crucial for us to consider at this point. Two things about God's law that we just have to notice. The first is consider the inward focus of God's law. God's law is inward focused. Do you remember how in verse 1, when Paul said to the religious people, you who judge others do the very same things. What are, what are the things that he's referring to? They're listed in the very last verses of Romans chapter 1. Here are some of the things on the list. Evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slandering, insolent, arrogant, boastful, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Chapter 2, he says, you religious people are doing all the same things. If you read that list really carefully, if you pay attention when you read it, you'll notice that all of these are, are, nearly all of these are not outward behaviors. Nearly all of these are attitudes, inner attitudes of the heart, things that begin within us, not things that happen outside of us. Greed, envy, malice, insolence, arrogance, heartless, ruthless. Paul is saying the exact same thing that Jesus did in his famous Sermon on the Mount. We read the law. We read the words, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. And we tend to see those things only as external behaviors. And we walk away and we think, well, see, I'm not so bad. I've not done that. What Paul does here is exactly what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's what we all should do. The law of God is describing a certain kind of person, a kind of heart. And so when you read the law, you need to actually be reading through the law to what is behind it. The law of God is, is actually a description of a kind of beautiful character, a different heart than the one that we have naturally. So let's look at murder just as one example. I've never shot someone. I've never stabbed anyone. And contrary to what my, my brothers would tell you about when we were growing up together, I've never tried to do either of those things. But Jesus and Paul are saying that murder is like an oak tree. How does the oak tree grow? Where does it start? It starts with this tiny little acorn. That's all it takes to grow an oak. Well, it's not all it takes to grow an oak tree. But if you don't have an acorn, you don't have an oak tree. 
Not every acorn grows into a tree, but every single oak tree on the face of the earth began with an acorn. So what's the seed of murder? What does murder start with? Superiority, hubris, arrogance, disdain, contempt. Treating a person not as a person, but as a thing. Looking down on others, using them. The implication is that the the difference between a murderer and us is just simply one of degree. I mean, unless, unless you welcome every human being who comes into your life, treating them as of infinite value and worth, then the seed of murder is there. If you disdain certain people, if you ignore certain people, if you just don't even care about certain people, then there's a little acorn in your soul. So what's the difference between an acorn and an oak tree? The only difference is fertilizer, water, and time. And God's law is calling us to something different, a different kind of heart, a different definition of relationships. God, when he says, do not murder, God is calling us to cherish others. Even those the world considers unimportant, of no consequence, we are to treat them as if they are the royal sons and daughters of God. That kind of heart is what the law of God is trying to get at. It's focused on who we are inwardly. I mean, we we might say, I've never killed anyone, but have you ever been angry? I've never committed adultery, but have you ever looked lustfully? Have you ever spoken crudely? I've never embezzled, but have you ever had a greedy heart? The acorn is there in all of us. And honestly, it doesn't take much water or fertilizer for that acorn to begin to sprout. So the, the, the law of God is inwardly focused. The second thing that we need to consider about the law of God is how intuitive it is. Even those of us here today who don't think of ourselves as Christian or even particularly religious, every one of us here would say that there are some lines that just should not be crossed ever by anyone. There are some places a person should never go and some things they should never say or do. Notice in verse 12. It says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. For all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Years ago, a man named Francis Schaeffer described this powerfully. As he put it, uh, Romans 2 is like having a tape recorder hanging down below your neck. It's invisible, and you can't see it or feel it, so don't try. But it's there, and it's recording. And one day, we will appear before God, and a lot of people will say something like this. Listen, I didn't know you even existed. You can't hold me responsible for your law. That would be unfair. Other people will say, I've heard of your law, but I've never read it. I didn't realize the God of the Bible was the real God. I mean, I know, now I see that you are. But you can't hold me responsible. You can't judge me for something that I didn't believe in. So how, how will God respond to that? As Francis Schaeffer put it, he will take the invisible tape recorder off our necks and make it visible to us. And then he will say, I want you to know that I'm a fair judge. I'm going to judge you by your own words because this tape recorder only recorded when you said to someone else, you ought dot, 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 or you should dot, dot, dot. 
tape recorder only recorded your standards for other people around you. Therefore, let's begin by listening to the standards by which you judged others. And then he'll hit play. And at that point, all of us will be desperate to turn off the tape recorder. Anything but that, right? Nobody in the history of the world will be able to stand in Judgment Day because we're not even going to be able to live up to our own standards, let alone God's. We're all, we're all lost. We know intuitively that there are lines that should never be crossed. And that's true. That's a good intuition given by God to protect us and to preserve us. I mean, if every person did what was right in their own eyes, the world would descend into complete chaos around us. And I think we see enough of that to know that that's true. But how much worse would it be if everybody consistently ignored all standards of action and just did whatever they wanted? God gave us his inwardly focused, intuitive law, buried it in our hearts. Every person, no matter how covered up or pushed away or marginalized it is, it's there. And he gave it to us to convict us of our need, to show us of our need for a new heart, and to compel us to hear the good news of the hope that he has provided for us. Which brings us to the third thing. What to do about it. What do we do about our spiritual failure? Is there any hope for us? Yes, there is. Thank God for verses, at least in Romans chapter 2 here, for verses 27 to 29. At the very end of this chapter, there's a discussion about a, a thing that's kind of strange to most of us today. Circumcision. Circumcision rarely had, has any significant religious significance for us today, uh, only with certain people groups. But in the Old Testament, it was the right by which each family showed that they were in relationship with God, and it was one of the main symbols that the Israelites used to show that they were God's people. Um, if you were circumcised, then you were one of God's people. And if you were not circumcised, then you were an outsider. That's how it worked way back in the day, centuries ago. But there's a problem. Look at verses 17 and 18. You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right. The problem is that they are relying on the law, but they're not abiding by it. Law relying is not the same thing as law abiding. Law relying makes you boast. I have a special relationship with God. God. Why? Because I'm an insider. I'm a good person. I'm one of of the good ones. I don't do this bad thing or that bad thing. I do these things and those things, and I'm a good person because of them. Law relying overlooks, it ignores the reality of our spiritual failure because we say, I have a special status. I'm one of God's people. But that attitude leaves us so broken. It's painful because when we're relying on the law, but not really abiding by it, And we find ourselves consistently going back and forth between superiority and inferiority. I mean, on the one hand, deep down inside, we know that we're not living like we should. We know that we're not what we should be. And then we try to, when we try to convince ourselves that we're good because we are obeying God's law, when we're trying to be moral, trying to be right, we inevitably feel inferior and guilty and shameful, and it stacks up on us. And we find ourselves very sensitive to criticism, and the feeling of failure is always lurking in the back of our minds. 
And then, I mean, almost like the very next minute, sometimes we can feel very superior because we've done this or we've done that. It makes us self-righteous and pharisaical. And so we flat, flat back and forth in the wind, swinging from superiority to inferiority and back again and again and again. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have lived there for years. I've lived there for years. That kind of thing does not make us pleasant to be around, by the way. That inward churning and instability, that lack of rest and peace, that's hard to live with. We don't even want to live with ourselves. So what's the solution? In verse 28 and 29, there's the key. Verse 28 and 29, the Apostle Paul wrote, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. What he is saying is that the only hope is to have a new heart. But how do you get a new heart? How is it possible to have inward circumcision of the heart? I mean, the one we understand, the other we don't. It can only, the, truth, it, the reality is it can only happen by not relying on the law and saying, I'm good because of my special status. I'm good because of what I, what I do. What should we rely on instead? Well, the answer is found in the story of the very first circumcision in the Bible. Way back at the, the beginning of Jewish history, uh, maybe you remember that story in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham makes a covenant with God, a binding contract. In those days, they didn't just drop a document and have both sides sign it like they do now. The tradition was to cut an animal in half and lay it down and walk between the, the two pieces of the animal. Doesn't that seem like a really weird tradition? I mean, imagine if we still did that. That would be pretty crazy. That's something Bear Grylls would do. But here's what they're saying. If I don't do everything that I've promised to you, may I be like these animals. May I be cut into pieces. It's acting out the punishment for breaking your promise. It was like, it was like this is what Abraham said. Uh, but the thing is, the funny thing is, in Genesis chapter 15, he doesn't just cut one animal in half and set it aside. He cuts five. And so that's like saying, um, I'm not just committed. I'm committed, 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 committed. Like when you're committed, 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 you're all in completely. That's what Abraham was saying. That was the vow he was taking to God. And we, I mean, don't we, don't we have that same attitude? God, no, really, this time, I'm really, really all in. Like, you know, I, I'll, I'll try harder this time. We double down on our commitment because we think that this sort of internal, self-generated holiness is the path forward. It was from that starting place, the starting place with Abraham, that God gave to Abraham's family the sign of circumcision, a bloody cut. God was telling each generation, if you come under the law and say, yes, the law will be my guide, but then you don't follow the law, then the curse of the covenant will be upon you. And that's, that seems so strange and foreign to us. But if you think, whoa, that's all kind of weird and nasty, remember, we do exactly the same thing today. We really do. We just do it in a less physical and less graphic way. So if you're, for example, if you're in a relationship with somebody who repeatedly violates you, who goes against your wishes, breaks their promises to you, does things you've asked them not to, and they just don't seem to care. They just keep going, persisting in that. At a certain point, what do you do? I mean, you say to them, I'm sorry, we can't be friends anymore. 
You cut them off. You separate from them. That's completely natural. And this kind of, the symbol of circumcision is the cutting off. It was the curse of the covenant. And God is saying, if you say, I'm going to obey your commands, and then you don't do it, if you repeatedly test his patience over time, just, then just like we experience in our human relationships, if you don't change what you do, then God will cut you off and separate from you. It only makes sense. I mean, we, we actually do the exact same thing. So what, what hope is there for us in all of this? Well, in another letter, a letter that he wrote to the Colossian church, in chapter 2, Paul the Apostle wrote something really amazing about circumcision. This is what he said. In Christ, you were also circumcised, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. And this tells us two amazing things. The first is this. When Jesus went to the cross, he was being circumcised. Now, it may not seem obvious at first, but think about it. When he became, he became bloody and was cut off, and when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was being cut off and alienated and cast aside. And he was, he was being told, you, you may not be with, we, we can't do this anymore. The relationship's over. Jesus, this is the, the irony of it, is Jesus is the only, the only human being who actually ever fulfilled the law, who did what he was supposed to. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. He was always loving and fully honest. He fulfilled the law completely. And yet he was cut off from God. Why? He was cut off for us. That's why. He did it for us. He was taking upon himself the curse that belonged to us. That's the first thing. The second incredible thing that Paul wrote in Colossians 2 is this. Therefore, in him, you are the circumcision. And he's saying that to both males and females, by the way. All Christians. That's noteworthy. But what did he mean by that? How are we circumcised in him? It means that if you are in Christ, if you're in Christ, then you've already been through judgment day. If you believe in him, if you say, Father, accept me because of what Jesus has done, then you've already been through judgment day. The judgment day described here in Romans 2, according to the law of God, you've already been through it. You've already survived it. There's no more wonderful picture than this of this than in the book of Revelation. Part of what uh, Brian was reading in the class earlier this morning. At the end of the Bible, where the, John the Apostle sees a vision of Judgment Day, all of humanity is assembled before the throne, and on the throne sits the great judge of all the world. And what does that judge look like? He's a lamb who was slain and yet now lives. And now that lamb who was slain is now the ruler of all things. Christ is the judge who was judged. He took on the judgment. He took on his own judgment on himself at the cross. He was cut off so that we wouldn't have to be. And so what are we supposed to do about our persistent, lifelong spiritual failure? I mean, the reality is there's absolutely nothing you can do. Nothing except this. To hide yourself in the lamb who was slain, who was bloodied and cut off and cast out 
instead of you. And if you believe in him, that means the judgment day is already over for you. Can you believe it? You've been carried through it in him. You have been sentenced, and he has already taken your place, and that sentence is already finished. That's the only thing, the only thing that can help us to survive our own spiritual failure. But thanks be to God. What else do we need? Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for giving us the bad news about Judgment Day, the bad news that we are spiritual failures who cannot stand in the judgment. Thank you even more for the good news that your Son, Jesus Christ, was circumcised for us on the cross, cut off for us so that now in him we have new hearts. Thank you. And we ask that you would please help us to live in new ways, to have the joy and the poise and the power that come with what we believe and what we know. Turn us away from ourselves and toward Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.